Hello, Dragonfly Nation. This is the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Caleb Musgrave. I am joined today by some awesome people who we've had on the show before for the Halloween specials. We're doing a patron-specific episode, or patron-sponsored episode in a sense. Uh, they helped create this episode by choosing which stories to tell. These stories are genuine, real stories that we've had to research, fact-check, make sure we got all the due diligence we could behind it, uh, specifically to talk about winter survival stories. We're going to be talking about the alert plane incident, the alert plane crash incident. We're going to be talking about the Donner Party. We're going to be talking about the Newfoundland uh, sealing ship incident or accident. And we're also going to be talking about the Franklin Expedition and the saga that there is. This may actually end up becoming a two-part episode uh, where we're going to be doing one part on one weekend and the next part the next weekend. Or we may try to make this one really long episode. There's a lot of information with the Donner Party and a lot to do about the Franklin Expedition as well. Like we're talking about stories that lasted where they were, they were there for like well over a year. So there's just a lot of things to get covered. And to help me with that, I brought in Rye the Adventure Guy, Emily Carell, who are both here with me, and Nikki Satira, who is way over in Gatineau right now. She couldn't join us in person, so we're actually recording her over the internet. The beauty of technology these days. So Nikki, you want to say hello to everybody? Hey, professional white girl at Joey Soybeth. <laughs> so we are actually going to start off with Nikki's story. Nikki has a story about the alert plane incident. If you want to talk about that. Yes, I do. <laughs> so before I get started, I want to just cite my sources. Um, first off, I got a lot of information from skiesmag.com. I also got a lot of information from the Royal Canadian Air Force's website and from McLean's Magazine archives and the New York Times archives. And I also got a little bit of information from that video from Ray Mears about survival in the Arctic. And just to preface this story a little bit and the sources that I used, all of these sources say pretty much the same thing except not all the time. So there might be misinformation in what I say because I basically looked at all these sources and said, okay, this one makes the most sense because sometimes they say different things. So if I get yeah. something wrong, I apologize. Yeah, when you're gonna have like conflicting stories or conflict information, you kind of have to interpret it yourself. And so that's gonna yeah, be exactly. happening. That's gonna be recurring throughout this whole episode for everybody's stories, I think. So yeah, and thank, feel thank free to for... send us an email and correct us. <laughs> Totally. And if you're someone who is actually involved in some of the research or involved in the actual incident, please get a hold of us so we can hear your side of the story as well. Um, but I, I want to thank you for like kind of doing that uh, acknowledgement of, of the fact that like, yeah, you're setting your sources, but sources can get kind of confusing. Mm -hmm. So whenever you're ready. I'm ready. So this happened on October 30th, 1991. It was flight 22 of Operation Box Top, which was a Canadian Air Force transport plane, which was also a C-130 Hercules plane, which means nothing to me, but- It's a very uh, big plane. It's a big plane, it's a big plane. So it was on a routine supply run from the United States Air Force Base at Thule. I think it's Thule or Thule, Greenland. Tool, I think. Tool. Okay, that makes sense. So it was coming from Tool Tooly. to the secret military listening post in Alert. 
which is on the northern end of Ellesmere Island. And it's the world's most northern settlement, which is 400 miles from the North Pole. Uh, so very, very isolated. So they're listening. And this mission was, yeah. <laughs> and this uh, mission was named Op Operation Box Top, like I said, and it was scheduled to land at 4.30 p.m. in alert. So this radar outpost, just a little bit of information about this place in alert. It was staffed by about 200 Canadian military personnel. And it, it said it is part of the continent's early missile warning system, but I was also like question mark because this article I'm reading was published in 1991. So not sure if it cur currently still is, but it was being resupplied for the winter. And all information about this place is restricted by the Canadian Defense Department. <laughs> and there's just a little bit more information. Not all information is restricted, but it acquired, or the Department of National Defense acquired the site, originally built in 1950 as a weather station. And then in 1958, it became the listening post. And today, its antennas are still aimed at Russia. <laughs> We're listening purposes. And so official documents, I'm using like air quotes right now, official documents describe the duties of the 200 National Defense Department employees assigned to the base as signals intelligence collection. And basically people just um, eavesdropping <laughs> 24 hours a day, seven days a week on the Soviet military. And Santa. And Santa, exactly. So this plane had 18 people on board. I believe it was five crew members. And what's that 18 minus five? <laughs> 13. 13 and 13 civilians. Pilot's name was Captain John Couch. He was 32 years old. And I don't know, maybe Caleb has more of a, a pulse on this kind of thing, but I was going to, I want you to paint a word picture of the Canadian high Arctic, Caleb. A picture, you want me to explain what the high Arctic looks like? A, a word picture of the weather and conditions oh. in the high Arctic. So the high Arctic, when you're well past the Arctic Circle, you're going towards the North Pole, you're dealing with this barren land landscape of rock, ice, and snow, and there's really nothing that stops the wind. There's maybe a big slab of ice that'll stop some from coming right off the coast, but if you're actually on land, especially if you're at the top of the island, you're going to be completely exposed to everything. Picture like the show Frontier when they're out on the coast and you're up in, or if you're, if you've ever been to Northern Newfoundland, like that wind that just never stops and is around you all the time. That is really what they were experiencing up there. Yeah. And then weather can change in a split second. Oh yeah. You're, you're dealing with uh, <clears throat> the North Atlantic and of course the continental warmth coming up and hitting the North pole and that cold coming from the North pole, you're getting like weather bombs where it could be sunny one minute and it's absolutely beautiful. I got a friend that's done a lot of weather research and climate research up at alert. Um, not going to mention his name, but uh, he works up, he's been working up there since like 2012, 2013 era. And his photos that he brings back are absolutely stunning. Like this beautiful, like gray blue landscape of Arctic foxes and Arctic wolves running around Ellesmere Island all this beautiful, beautiful landscape. And then the next second, just complete whiteout conditions and strong winds that are going like 110 kilometers an hour because there's nothing to stop it. There's nothing to slow it down. 
And like temperatures of like minus 70 degrees Celsius. Yeah, it drops fast, especially once the sun disappears or if the sun's not there at all in the winter. And also just for, for like a little bit of a note on this area is that like there is no, it is the most farthest north settlement and there's also nobody nearby. Like it, it had no, not even any local groups of people living there. You know, it's just far out in the reaches of the Canadian Arctic. I think the next closest place is the Inuit villages and the yeah. and communities and they are well away from there because they know that it's inhospitable. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> so I'll, I'll jump back to what was happening with the plane. So the plane was actually on its final approach to the alert airstrip and <laughs> airstrip and it clipped the top of a hill and then crashed. So the crash site was 12 miles from the alert airstrip. And so the crew that were on the plane, all of them survived the initial crash. Let me just say that first off. Um, they were expecting rescue within the hour. Haha. -ha. No, that did not happen. <laughs> so here's where sources got a little bit finicky here. Some sources said that the captain sent out a, a distress call. And then the, the one I'm going with is this. So I'll, I'll just read into it. Um, so waiting for the plane to arrive was Major Donald Hansen. So he was the airlift commander appointed by the CFB NAMAO. I don't know how to pronounce that. Do you know? N-A-M-A-O. NAMAO. Or NAMAO. NAMAO. Base commander, um, Colonel Mike Wansink, who was the overall commander of Operation Box Top. So at 4.35 p.m., five minutes after the, the estimated time of arrival of the plane, Hansen contacted the radar operator to see if Operation Box Top 22 was, uh, had arrived. And they told him that the aircraft had disappeared from the radar into ground clutter. So he immediately initiated an all frequencies communications check. There was no response from Box Top 22, of course, because they had crashed. And Hansen then directed the following aircraft, Box Top 21, to fly the area. So box top 21 reported a large ground fire to the east of the airport. And we're talking like 12 miles, that's about 19 and a half kilometers. They're, they're almost 20k away. Yeah. And that's like, it doesn't sound like far, like that's a quick drive to town if you live out in the country, but that's a long distance to, to make when you're dealing with extreme cold and you're dealing with injuries. And the Arctic in general. <laughs> yeah. So Hansen immediately activated a disaster command post and in doing so launched one of Canada's, and I quote, longest, largest, and most frustrating rescues. So this is the timeline of the rescue from Skies Mag. I think that's what it was called, Skies Mag. Yeah. So within minutes, Air Transport Group headquarters was notified that Box Top 22 had crashed and the status of survivors was not known. At the same time, the Edmonton Rescue Coordination Center was advised by Transport Canada's Edmonton Area Control Center that the aircraft was overdue. Then a massive rescue operation commenced with participants from across Canada, Alaska, and Greenland. The RCC, which is the Edmonton Rescue Coordination Center, 
contacted alert and was told that box top 22 had crashed. The RCC immediately alerted the standby search and rescue Hercules at 435 squadron at the CFB Namau. <laughs> I'm gonna forever forget how to pronounce this, which went from a 30 minute standby to immediate readiness. Colonel Juan Sink was notified and then activated the major air disaster, which is called as the acronym MAGAID plan. The Canadian search and rescue system has a number of contingency plans and MAGAID is designed to cover a crash or emergency landing of a large aircraft in the north. So resources from all SAR locations across Canada are alerted to respond with their 12 to 20 person standard rescue kits. Additionally, Four large parachute deployable MAGAID kits capable of supporting 360 survivors could be dispatched from the location at CFB NAMA to the crash site. So by 7.20 p.m., a 435 Squadron SRCC-130, I think that's a plane, <laughs> Rescue 342 with two flight crews. Well, it says CC-130. So a C-130 is a Hercules. Yeah. yeah. So they were all Hercules, these planes, I think. So this Hercules with two flight crews and 14 search and rescue techs, they took off from CFB NAMAU and estimated to arrive in alert by 2.20 a.m. on October 31st. So this is that night, early morning the next day. The standby search and rescue CC-130 from 413 Squadron at CFB Greenwood, Nova Scotia was launched a minute later with an estimated time of arrival about 2.30 a.m. Rescue 301, a CH-133 Labrador helicopter from 103 Rescue Unit, now known as 103 Squadron, also left Gander, Newfoundland with two crews with an estimated flight time of 24 hours. Another Labrador rescue from 315 from 424 Squadron launched from CFB Trenton, Ontario. There's a lot of planes being sent. In other words, a lot of stuff, a lot of resources are being sent immediately to try and do what exactly. they can. Exactly. This is going to become a massive rescue operation. Yep. <laughs> A CC-115 Buffalo from 442 Squadron departed from Thompson, Man. What is that? What's Man? Manitoba. Oh, thank you. <laughs> wow. Okay, I can't believe I, I didn't think it was Manitoba. And a CH-135 Twin Huey helicopter from 444 Squadron also departed from CFB Goose Bay, Newfoundland by 8 p.m. Another Labrador was underway from CFB Greenwood at the same time. So what's being described here is you have dual prop, uh, dual prop uh, planes, dual prop helicopters, both being sent. You have four uh, or quadruple prop, prop or quad rotor hel uh, planes as well coming in, not helicopters, planes. So with C-130 Hercules or CC-130 Hercules is this massive plane. They're built like a tank with wings and they got four props. They're even capable of flying with just two props going, two propellers going. So they have half a wing. 150 foot wingspan, I think. Yeah, so if half a wing is blown off, the plane can still fly. Like these things are tanks. And the fact that they, they clipped a hill and this thing crashed, that was a massive hill that they must've hit. That must've been one solid piece of rock. And the fact that now they have more of those coming, they have buffaloes, which are the C-115 uh, buffaloes, 
they're dual props. They have one prop in each wing, but they're specifically designed for SAR tech work, SAR search and rescue technician operation work. And then the Hueys are a dual prop rotator or dual road rotator helicopters. These are the big stable and same with the Labradors. They're really stable. They're made for doing like hovering one place and dropping down ropes and hauling like equipment and people up and down. These are some intense pieces of machinery, like million dollar, multi-million dollar planes and helicopters, all converging in one location. <clears throat> like this is like calling the Avengers for one car crash in a sense. Like they're sending everything they've got. Yeah. There's still a few more too. <laughs> oh yeah, I believe. It. I don't remember which um, plane I left off at. That was the one from um, Goose Bay, Newfoundland, right? Yeah, okay. So then the weather started to, to deteriorate. So it forced the one, the Labrador from Gander, Newfoundland to turn back. And the twin Huey was canceled also because of the distance and the time required for it to fly to alert. Then the crews at 408 Tactical Helicopter Squadron at CFB NAMO began taking apart a twin Huey for transport to alert by Hercules, which is the plane again. By 11.30 p.m., the ground party in all-terrain vehicles and the circling aircraft had seen three green flares from the crash site. So that was telling them that there were survivors on the ground. Yeah. At 11.52 p.m., the Majade CC-130 was launched from CFB Namau and preparations were made to accommodate the injured in Thule, Tool, Greenland, and Iqaluit. These were the closest communities to the crash scene, by the way. Um, yeah. And they were the only ones with like suitable medical facilities. Well, these are the, these are the closest like places that could do something there's there's closer indigenous communities but it's not like you're, they're going to jump in an umiak exactly boat and, and boat <laughs> yeah we're, we're talking like these are the closest military aircraft bases that can actually get someone there and actually do something yeah and of course get them back and take care of them so by this time that's when the weather got really really bad i believe temperatures started going down to minus 70 and it was full whiteout <laughs> so imagine there's 20 or 18 people yeah. survivors of the plane crash now stuck on the ground 12 miles outside of alert and they are experiencing temperatures of minus 60 degrees, minus 70 degrees, and complete whiteout. Just to paint so a I'll, picture, I'll, like, can you paint a picture of like, what's the coldest you've ever experienced, Nikki? Minus 30. And how comfortable were you at minus 30? Very uncomfortable. <laughs> now add another negative 40. Like negative 40, wind. negative 40 is so cold that both Celsius and Fahrenheit agree that that is negative 40. Like that's the one yeah. number mathematically that lines up both Celsius negative 40 and Fahrenheit negative 40 are negative 40 at the exact same temperature. Add that amount to what Nikki has already experienced in her life. That is, and that's just the air temperature. That's not including the wind chill, correct? Yep. Yep. Like that's absurd. actually, I don't know. I don't want to say, yep. I don't actually know. I'll have to look into that myself. We'll have yeah. to come back with facts later on with that one. Totally. <laughs> and the thing is, like, when I read that it was minus 70, 
I actually had no idea that temperatures on the planet could do that. <laughs> oh, they get much even colder down in Antarctica. I had no idea. 110 was once experienced. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So Third. these people are down there in this weather. Okay, so I'm going to move on to Sky's Meg timeline for day two. They seem like these people have have their stuff together. Um, Sky's Meg, they seem to have the most information about this plane crash. Just as an FYI. Mm -hmm. So arriving over the crash scene at 2.39 a.m., Rescue 342 was unable to parachute the search and rescue techs because of high winds and blowing snow that obscured the crash site. So they were equipped with 1950s vintage T-10 parachutes, <laughs> which are unsuitable for use in winds that exceed 20 to 30 kilometers per hour. And as so well, they're dealing with Cold War era yeah. technology <laughs> in post post cold war like times like this is this is 91 i was i was three years old when this happened yeah and they're dealing with stuff that came out just after the second world war <laughs> that's absurd yeah <laughs> so as well the ground party they were forced to return back to the alert base because they had mechanical difficulties and they had a lack of any kind of useful navigation equipment and, and vehicles that could traverse the steep slopes of the Sheridan River Valley, which was between them and the crash site. So they're cut off at the pass in a sense. They can't get across. They, there's yeah. no way to get to them. They can't ford the river. Yeah. Holy. <laughs> So there was also another issue that they talk about a little bit is that staff were rotating through the CFS alert every six months. So the few that were present had very, um, they didn't have much knowledge of the local terrain. And to on top of that, the conditions at this point, it was 2.32 in the morning, there, it was pitch black, 50 kilometer to 80 kilometer an hour winds. Wow. Okay, I think, here we go. Yes, I think it was with the wind chill minus 70. Okay, so the temperature, the actual air temperature was 20 to 30, minus 20 to 30 degrees Celsius. With the wind chill and up again up there, nothing stopping the wind other than the fuselage of the plane. Exactly. Yeah. And it was zero visibility and it was they, what they called a true Arctic white, whiteout. Yeah, this is not that kind of storm where you're like, I can kind of see the road. This no. is like, you cannot see anything. Totally. They did like training for this. They train people for this, like in Antarctica, you know? <laughs> what? I said, uh-huh. Yeah, they like blindfold them and make them like train to find their base or like shelter in a whiteout because it happens so often in these temperatures or like in these uh, conditions. conditions. Yeah. yeah. So by 3 a.m., Rescue 315 was leaving Val d'Or, Quebec, and another Buffalo had been launched from CFB Trenton to fly navigation support for the visual flight rules only Labrador helicopter. At 5.25 a.m., Rescue 342 picked up a radio transmission from the crash site and determined there were at least 14 survivors and some of them were badly injured. So the effects of the severe cold were becoming a critical issue and rescuers were becoming increasingly frustrated by the weather and their inability to reach the crash scene. 
So a continuous barrage of flares from the circling, 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 circling Hercules aircraft provided sufficient light for the StarTex to jump if the storm abated. So then a second ground party attempt with the StarTex from NAMAO and staff from ALERT using light provided from the airborne flares. <laughs> it's just, sorry, I'm laughing because, not because this is funny, but because this is just crazy. Absolutely absurd. It's absolutely absurd. So they attempted to reach the cra crash site using poor quality terrain maps and an altimeter built into a wristwatch. This is ridiculous. A Greenland Airbell 212 attempted to make the trip from Tool, but two hours later was forced to return due to the weather. Meanwhile, the Edmonton RCC had located two United States Army HH-60 Pave Hawk helicopters at the Elmendorf Air Force Base in Alaska and had obtained permission to use them in the rescue attempt. A Lockheed C-5 Galaxy aircraft was located to transport the two helicopters to Tool, and a U.S. Air Force HC-30 was rerouted to provide air-to-air -air refueling for the helicopters once they were assembled in Tool. At 1.15 p.m., radio contact was lost with the survivors, and the ground rescue teams were forced to return once again to alert. However, on their third attempt, the ground team crossed the Sheridan River finally, and slowly made their way towards the crash site and the survivors. I'm almost done with this timeline and then we can get into what happened. Okay. Yeah. So in the next few hours, drama continued. The 408 Squadron Twin Huey left CFB NAMA in a CC-130 and the Buffalo escorting the rescue Labradors were unserviceable in Quebec and was replaced by a CC-130. One of the Labradors then went unserviceable and shortly after the long range navigation system failed in the second Labrador. <laughs> oh my goodness. So let's just paint a picture right now. We're talking, yes. <laughs> about, we're talking about 1990s, early 1990s, late 80s kind of technology. GPS, global positioning systems were just getting underway at this point. Like they were not the most effective yet. So nowadays, when someone's in a whiteout condition, SARTEC can come in with GPS that can cut through a snowstorm very, very effectively. We're talking about folks that have technology to the best of their ability. The fact that somebody was using an altimeter on their wristwatch, we're scoffing at that, but that was probably the best tech they had at the time where they were. It'd be right. like if we could do a search and rescue now and all we had was a map and compass. Yep. We didn't have GPS, we didn't have EPIRBs and other locators and stuff. They, they, they know exactly where this plane is. They know exactly where it is, but they have to navigate through absolutely impossible conditions to find them with technology that is in our, like, frankly, 30 years in the past of us yeah. now. So and I'm only laughing because, like, it's impressive. Yeah. It's just really impressive. It, it's more this of a shocked, it's more of a shocked <laughs> chuckle than a laugh, really. Exactly, exactly. Because they're just, I mean, they're so badass. <laughs> mm -hmm. They're trying their damnedest and they're they're going up against immeasurable odds to do so. Yeah. <laughs> okay, there's only two more of this timeline. Okay. Okay. So the hell this helicopter rescue 315 continued on using dead reckoning until a CP-140 Aurora from the RCAF's 
Then Maritime Air Group arrived to escort it for the remaining 20 hours of flight time. By 11.50 p.m., it had reached Clyde River on the coast of Baffin Island and was en route to Pond Inlet. At 11.55 p.m., Sartex from the Rescue 305 circling. It's really funny when circling and Hercules are next to each other. Circling Hercules, <laughs> piloted by Maj Marv McCauley of CFB Greenwood, seized a moment of opportunity and despite the wind still being above their safe landing speed, parachuted <laughs> from far lower than the reported 1,000 feet into the gale below. I'm sorry, I have to stop. This is just amazing. So the major, not the madge, uh, the major well, brought them in. It's short yeah. major. Yeah. yeah, so they came in and they went in below where they're supposed to safely launch from with a, with a parachute, with parachutes that are not up to snuff. And they dove in. Like, I don't think any single person that was involved in this rescue should ever have to buy a drink for themselves ever again, Frank. No, like absolutely these, not. These people, we should be lining people up to breed with them to make sure that we have badasses in the future. Like, this is incredible. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so they landed without injury. And then they started first aid on the survivors and relayed conditions to the command center. A second drop of Sartex followed them from Rescue 342, um, the Edmonton CC-130. Mm -hmm. And they jumped from extremely low altitudes with minor injuries and assisted the first team in stabilizing the survivors. Um, with the exception of one toboggan, all airdropped supplies were blown away after landing and non-recoverable. So they, now they've lost their own things to make sure that they survive with this crew and make sure they can help help these people. So they're working with minimalist equipment now, like subpar preferences of equipment. Mm -hmm. This is insane. So reportedly, Sartex hit the ground almost immediately after leaving the aircraft as their parachutes were deployed via static lines, indicating how low they actually jumped. Wow. Yeah. That's a couple of hundred feet. Yeah. Wow. And apparently they were all confused. They were like, how do we just hit the ground so fast? <laughs> <laughs> oh, crap. It's already here. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> they believed that their canopies opened violently <laughs> and that they had impacted other jumpers in the air. But in reality, they were being dragged along the snow with their own inflated canopies. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So here's some intel from the ground. I don't have a lot of survivor stories of what these people endured on the ground during that time. But I want to make a shout out to Captain Wilma de Grout, who was 26 years old at the time. So while this was all happening inside the wreckage, um, Wilma de Grout, Captain, sorry, Wilma de Grout, she was a doctor stationed at CFB Trenton. So she suffered a broken ankle in the wreck. And she went from survivor to survivor working by flashlight and using the medical supplies on board and survival kits to treat everybody. So some people were suffering from like lacerations or broken bones, um, burns mm -hmm. and hypothermia. Yeah. 
And so as this like crazy wind is going, ripping through the plane wreckage and all the survivors, she was actually trying to lift their spirits and joke around with everybody and, you know, keep them happy. So also at the same time, frostbite was starting to set in with everybody and she knew that time was running out. So the 40 hours after the rescue mission started, um, sorry, I'm going to skip back. So all the, all the survivors were actually covered in diesel fuel. So the plane actually broke into like three pieces and it and exposed the fuel tank and then it covered everybody in diesel fuel. And all of these people, the survivors, endured all these temperatures, endured the whiteout, endured um, most of them getting frostbitten. And most of them sheltered in the tail section of the aircraft, but others were ex like completely exposed to the elements because they were worried about spinal injuries. So the ones who they weren't worried about spinal injuries were taking cover inside the aircraft. Right. In but then they put like pop-up tents or something over the people that they were like, we don't want to move them because they have spinal injuries. And this, I don't know what you think about this, Caleb, but I feel like this might be a kind of situation where you're like, you'd maybe want to move people. Personally, like it, it comes down like how bad is the spinal injury? If you move them and you cut off their spinal cord at the neck, you could potentially kill them. Yeah. Um, but is that like it comes down to like an ethical like question of like, are they going to be worse off out here or are they going to be better off out here? Right. And for me, like hindsight is twenty twenty. We know these people suffered some of the worst because they were out in the elements. Now the survival shelters that they put up, these pup tents or pop tents, they're not really a pop tent. I actually have one at the camp that we have used in the past. It's kind of more like a the parachute game where you throw it up in the air and then everybody pulls it in, snugs it around them and it traps a bubble of warm air. The problem is you kind of have to be sitting up or at least have enough people like propping it up to keep it kind of forming that, that bubble. Everybody laying down stationary and every time you come in and out to check on them, you're losing that air. So, and they're best set up in a sheltered location where the wind is not going to cut against it. Like the wind can pick these things up like a sail and just tear, tear them away from you or let the wind in. And yeah, these shelters are still used by the Canadian forces for the Hercules and other survival kits. They do work. Uh, there's been some advancements on them since then, but they can only do what they can. And having everybody who's stationary, like their broken backs or spinal injuries in a shelter like that, Personally, I would eventually like, again, this is hindsight. I'm not judging whoever was involved, the captain and everybody else that was involved with this. I would have tried to drag their asses into the, into the tail section yeah. myself. But again, they had a better idea of what was going on down there. I yeah. wasn't able to see it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's easy to create snap judgments totally. about what could happen or what actually did happen or what you would do personally in this situation. But I mean, I kind of feel like if they had left them with those tents outside because they were worried about spinal injuries, they probably made the right call. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, okay. I'm not sure if the people that died, so unfortunately of the 18 people, five died. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if any of those died were the were ones outside. There's no really information about that. There's not much information about the survivors. Well, yeah, it's a military base. It's a military plane. It's military personnel. They're going to keep a lot of that hush hush because of what they'll consider security issues. So a lot of that is going to remain either quiet or classified until at a further date when they decide that it can be declassified. We may not know the full story until 10, 15 years, 20 years down the road. Right. Like it may, it yeah. may not come out until like 2040 when we're all much older and much grayer that they're like, oh, actually, so what happened was exactly this. And they'll tell us the full story and everything we're saying right now is bullshit. But mm-hmm. that's their prerogative. They're doing it for Canadian security and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And very, very sadly, because this person was instrumental in saving the life of another person who was on the plane. I can't I didn't write down his name which, um, but he is in the video by Ray Mears about the survival in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. And he lost his leg and part of his foot. So Captain John Couch saved his life and then unfortunately froze to death. Oh, yeah. It's really sad. I, I don't want to cry on the podcast, but I'm about to. So I'm just going to keep talking. Okay. Um, <laughs> So when they were all rescued, they they flew to a military hospital in Toul on Saturday morning. And then they airlifted the six of the worst injured to hospitals in Ottawa. And then the rest of the survivors were flown to Edmonton or the capital over the weekend. So maybe I don't I don't know. Caleb, this might be more your thing where we can get into it. Maybe Ryan wants to speak up a little, but what are the learnings from this? And I also know that you talked about a little bit of what they did after this happened. Yeah, so the first learnings is that you look at all the technology they had at the time, you look at all the equipment they had, they had how many crews went out to help you need to be prepared for complete self-reliance in a situation like this, because yeah, you're only 20 K from the the actual airport. You're only 20 K from the base, but are they going to be able to show up in the next two hours? Are they going to be able to show up in the next two days? Like this took over two days to happen. Um, The whole procedure of getting everybody out of there was a long time. And even if you can survive for two days, are you going to be able to survive in those conditions? Like the CFB, uh, the Canadian forces have changed a lot of their game plans since then. They've done a lot of research on this. Um, Operation Nanook, which is part of the uh, Canadian uh, Canadian Rangers, sorry, not Canadian Rangers, Canadian Reservists uh, training course that they do up in alert. Part of it is in the Arctic survival training regarding what happened that day in October, way back in 91. And a lot of research has gone into it. A lot of studies have gone into it. A lot of training has come out of it. And a lot of technology has come out of it. Uh, most SARTEC vehicles now uh, for aircraft are heavily equipped with everything from infrared 
to heavy duty multi-directional GPS. So the, the multi-directional GPS kind of like Trimble systems. For those of you that aren't aware of GPS and how it works, it's a satellite uplink system that you send basically a beacon up to the satellite. The satellites triangulate your general location and then they send that information back down to you. That's only with like one push of the button. So when you hit the button once and it goes up and it comes back down, no matter how expensive your GPS unit is, no matter how good it is, how good of a Garmin you have, most civilian level GPS are gonna be good to within three meters if you're lucky. That is gonna be less when you're dealing with bad conditions because of course weather is gonna change a lot of that canopy, what the atmosphere is looking like, how much cloud cover, how much snow cover. And so then you see things like Trimble uh, and all other multi-directional or multi-phase uh, global positioning where they you hit the button once and it sends that, that beacon up upwards of 30 times. And then it averages that down to a few centimeters. And this sounds like it's a little overkill for, for a plane looking for a plane. This is a plane looking for a plane in an area that is the size of Toronto. And it's looking for the safest locations and it's trying to find exactly where all the terrain is in complete whiteout. So you need to have the most accurate technology you can. These planes are now and helicopters now equipped with IR or infrared, forward-looking infrared or FLIR. They have downward-facing uh, infrared, all these different kinds of technologies. The fact that they're having to use flares and the, and the Hercules is kind of famous for flares. If you type in on, on a search engine, uh, C-130 Hercules flares, it looks like a peacock's fan, like a peacock's tail of how many flares are flying out of this thing at once. And they're used for everything from signaling like they are in this case giving light to the searchers on the ground all the way to being able to help uh misdirect a heat-seeking missile these are very very refined technologies but even with all that it took how much time to find these people and get to them they knew exactly where they were can we get to them is the question and out of that a lot of trainings come out a lot of technology that said we've got much better gps now um, altimeters and decometers and all these different kinds of things that are going to give you angles and all the terrain you got to be able to do with your vehicles. Like the fact that they're trying to cross a river and they couldn't cross the river because it was too steep and too rough. That is changed since then. A lot of technology has changed up there a lot. Uh, and um, for search and rescue procedures, this is like textbook. They have done everything they could with the technology they had. And now we've advanced 30 years into the future with new technologies and things are changing quite a bit. Uh, would we be able to find them and get to them faster now? I believe so. Mm -hmm. Do I do I know that for a fact? Would any of these SARTEC that are working together today say that? I don't know. Because that is like, this is literally the, the pinnacle of worst conditions, worst scenario, mm -hmm. worst case scenario for a search and rescue to happen. Because the plane went down, there wasn't a storm yet. Like yeah. the plane was in the air because it was safe to fly at that time. They clipped a hill. And in the time it took for people to respond to that, then a storm came in and it was a classic Arctic whiteout. Like, as I was trying to say earlier, paint your glasses white and try to see through them. That's what these yeah. pilots were dealing with. That's what these parachutists were dealing with. I have nothing but the utmost respect for yeah. every single person on the ground and in the air and regarding this situation. I don't even know what I can say to critique it 
because they yeah. did. <laughs> and they went above and beyond. They were like, no, we can't we can't drop parachutes. These parachutes won't handle this kind of conditions. And the StarTech went, eh, we'll do it anyways. Like, we have to rescue these people. We will risk our lives to save these people. It gives me chills. Like, this whole story, like, I'm getting tears in my eyes. I'm getting chills because they worked so hard. Like, I think about myself in a situation like this. I would probably be crying in a corner and refuse to go. You know what I mean? Like, these people were brave as hell. Bold. Bold. And just, like, like they were they just wanted to save lives yeah and just the amount of resources and energy and time that was put into this rescue mission just makes me believe in humanity again because <laughs> it was all for people like it was for people like i've worked with sartek for off and on 13 14 years now and whether they're ground crew or air crew, Sartek, they are honestly the most underappreciated heroes we have in, in Canada. And they are humble. They, 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 they don't do this for ego. They don't, don't, they don't do this for the free beers at the, at, the, at the mess hall or the canteen. They don't do this for uh, a free dinner when they go out. They don't do this yeah. for recognition. They do this because they give a shit about human life. Yeah. And I have the utmost respect for these people. And I am honored to know Sartek operate, uh, Sartek search, search and rescue, search and rescue technicians. I have the utmost respect for, and I'm honored to know them. Um, for me, what I learned out of this was like, you need to be prepared <laughs> for any situation. <laughs> As and, always, right? Like I am going through my head right now, since we start talking about this, like what would they have had on that plane? That could have given them a better advantage what would i have brought with me that would give mm -hmm. me a better advantage but also like make sure like how can i take care of my fellow person like i carry an yeah. extra case blanket in my cargo pocket or in my in my emergency kit in case someone else doesn't have one but you can only do that so far for like negative 70 conditions right. with like 18 people on the ground well they had extra clothing and like warm stuff they had a bunch of that but it burned up <laughs> yeah it that's burned like, up in the plane. I think they were covered in diesel. They were covered. They were in covered diesel. in fuel. It, which evaporates, which means yeah. you're going to get colder. Which is like one of the problems. Like I'm guessing, because again, we can't find it in the research, but I'm guessing that had a lot to contribute to the frostbite. Maybe it's like yeah. if you work, if you're like filling your stove while winter camping, the biggest fear you have is that naphtha or white gas getting on your skin, because it's going to evaporate like that in the air, and it's going to just burn your skin fast with frostbite. So just wrapping my head around what happened to these people, like they were covered in petrol, they were covered in injuries, in extreme cold, and half their supplies are gone. They're just gone. If not more of their supplies, it's just gone up in, up in smoke. And, and I kind of want to um, just like shout out again that this was the longest, largest, most Northern rescue mission of, in the history of the world <laughs> yeah and with this like with that kind of like status to it it's amazing that there's not much more information out there yeah you yeah. think there'd be tons of like journals about it and like survival instructors from around the world coming to research this stuff canadian forces sharing this knowledge with other militaries around the world. no it's it's very hush hush on what happened out there 
exactly yeah it's not to the level of conspiracy theory hush hush but it's definitely up there and like yeah we don't know and we're not going to know for a while yeah and i just want to also can i like make a closing oh maybe ryan you got anything to say yeah i was just thinking one of the transferable lessons we can kind of take is this is not to over rely on the technology we have these days especially and they didn't have that technology but some people they get their spot device they get get a little mirror and they're like i'm set i'm ready to go out into the wilderness i'm ready to if anything bad happens there's always someone that can take care of that part for me i'll just call them and they'll come pick me up with some mcdonald's mom yeah (laughs) i'm lost 100 miles into the woods but i think people need to learn to rely more on themselves because there's anything that can happen with the natural disasters anything like that now we're talking it's october so there's already like freeze up and stuff and there was a, it was clearly a snowstorm my only question was like how much snow was on the ground could they have possibly been like building up like the only thing i would say like that i would want to know to be able to give any kind of critique and not criticism just a critique is were was there enough snow on the ground that they could have been insulating that thing better and making people more protected but i i would assume people that are trained in arctic survival who are living up in the freaking arctic they are closer to santa than they are to toronto at that time i'm pretty sure they would have thought of that so i'm assuming that there wasn't that much snow on the ground at the time or at least not usable snow that was packable but yeah relying on yourself 100 percent learning how to rely on yourself and rely on each other and rely as a team on one another and then i guess continue like you can't really control everything if it burned up in a yeah like a fiery crash but just having redundancy in your emergency supplies totally having multiple ways in different areas don't always pack everything all in one don't put your eggs in one basket yeah yeah it's incredible like I've been in a Herc before. They're spacious as hell uh, in some ways and then very compact in other ways. My question, like, and I don't have this answer because I'm not, I'm not military personnel. Um, what are you allowed to have as a carry-on luggage on, a, on an operation like that? Has that changed since then? Like maybe back then they're like, nope, can't have all this stuff on you. That's too much bulk in one space. Have they des- developed it so that they can have more personal supplies on the person in case of an incident like this again? I'd like to know that. I'm not sure if they would have as many restrictions being in a Hercules. Yeah. Since they're made to carry huge. They, can, they move Humvees and stuff. Gatling guns <laughs> in the sky with rockets and everything. Yeah, so. they're they're basically the they're basically the semi truck of the air is a Hercules. So I would assume they were able to carry that kind of stuff. I would like to know though. I'm, we're making a lot of like educated guesses here, but I'd like to know like what, where was this stuff and where was it located on the plane? Has that changed since then? Like, oh, we should have emergency supplies right beside the people instead of in storage or whatever it may be that they would think of putting in prior. Has that changed? I'd, I'd like to know personally what has changed since or what hasn't changed since because maybe they did everything right and everything was working the way it was supposed to work. And there's no better way to do it. I'd like to know that, but I'm, we're not going to get that out of this episode. Yeah. <laughs> so how would you like to close, Nikki? Well, I just want to um, give a list of those who died and those who survived. Totally. Maybe start with the survivors and then kind of like in memoriam. Yeah. So 
the of the survivors, there was Robert Thompson, who's a civilian of the Canadian Forces Base Trenton. I believe that was the guy in the um, Ramirez video. I believe so. Yeah, uh, I think if you're not sure what I'm referring to, I mean the guy who lost his leg and was rescued by the captain. Yeah. Uh, Susan Hillier, who is a civilian of the Canadian Forces Base in Trenton as well. Captain Richard Damelin logistics officer of the Canadian Forces Communication Command Headquarters in Ottawa. Captain Wilma de Groot, who was a doctor, is a doctor, I don't know. I'm gonna say was, they are not dead, they are the survivors, but I'm gonna say was because I don't know where they're at now. <laughs> she may have retired at this point. Sorry? She may have retired at this point. She may have retired at this point, nobody knows. Uh, Canadian Forces Base Trenton, Lieutenant Joe Bales, who is a pilot at 435 Squadron CFB in Namau. Lieutenant Mike Moore, a navigator of 435 Squadron CFB in Namau. Um, MWO, I believe that's Master Warrant Officer, Mark Tremblay, Supply Technician of the Canadian Forces Communication Command Headquarters in Ottawa. Sergeant Paul West, Flight Engineer, 435 Squadron CFB Namau. Um, Master Corporal Tony Cobden, Communications Researcher, 770 Communication Research Squadron in Gander, Newfoundland. Master Corporal David Meese, Radio Technician, 1 Canadian Division Headquarters and Signal Squadron, CFB Kingston, Ontario. Uh, Master Corporal Mario Elfson, Elfson, Communications Researcher, CFS, Leitrim, Ottawa, Ontario. Um, military Secretary, I believe, Monty or Montgomery, Communications Researcher of 771 Communicator Research Squadron. And Private Bill Vance, Communications Researcher at CFS Leitrim as well. So those were the survivors. And then those who did not survive this plane crash were Captain John Couch, the pilot, 435 Transport Squadron CFB NAMO. Captain Judy Trepanier, Logistics Officer for the Canadian Forces, Communication Command Headquarters in Ottawa. Um, Master Warrant Officer Tom Jardine, Regional Services Manager, Canex Canadian Forces Base Trenton, Ontario. Um, Warrant Officer, WO. Robert Grimsley, Supply Technician of the Canadian Forces Communication Command Headquarters in Ottawa, Ontario. And then Master Corporal Roland Petre, Traffic Technician, 435 Squadron, CFB, NAMO, Atlanta. Alberta, sorry. <laughs> I was like, Atlanta. <laughs> yeah, Alberta makes more sense. Um, to those who passed on and to those who survived, we acknowledge you and we hold you in our thoughts. This was an incredible yeah incredible journey you went on an incredible experience that we cannot even fathom yeah those of you that came back we are incredibly amazed by what you went through and for those that didn't come back we honor you thank you yeah in 2016 they put a memorial they took um a group including representative representatives of the crash victims to the crash site and did a memorial there Yeah. Wow. You know, I've known about the alert incident, the alert plane crash since I was in high school, and yet I never knew this much. And as Nikki said throughout this episode, 
there's not a lot out there because it's still classified under military knowledge. And so it's not in the public. Um, there's not a lot of public information out there about what happened. And yet you see there's still a ton of information out there. So uh, first and foremost, I want to thank Nikki Satira for this episode. But also I want to thank our special guest, Rye the Adventure Guy, for this episode as well, who asked a few questions, brought in a few tidbits of his own. But I also want to mention that originally this was supposed to be one episode. This story, another story by Emily, another story by Ryan, another story by me. And we realized, you know what, these each deserve their own episode. So coming up after this episode, you'll be hearing Emily Carell talking about the Newfoundland incident. And then right after that, you'll be hearing all about the uh, Donner Party by Rye the Adventure Guy. And finally, tomorrow, the next day, you're going to be hearing me talk about the Franklin Expedition. So happy holidays. Take care of each other. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you to everybody who's been contributing to this, both our special guests, Emily, Rye, and Nikki, as well as our patrons over at Patreon, our supporters at Patreon, people like Paul McCartney, Renee Nolting, Martin Heidinger, and many, many others. Thank you so much, everybody. Happy holidays. <laughs>